systems that we use, the training areas that we use, pretty much all came out of the late 70s and early 80s. And so we must modernize the Army. And modernizing the Army is not just about getting new equipment. It's the doctrine. It's the organizations. It's the people. And, 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 and it's the training that goes along with that. We are in a war for talent. We're competing for talent. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI, and for this episode, I am thrilled to have had the opportunity to speak to Chief of Staff of the Army, General James McConville. The conversation is a great chance to hear from the very top, from the senior most officer in the United States Army, about a range of topics, from new weapon systems and vehicles that will be fielded as part of the Army's modernization strategy, to the multi-domain operations concept, a significant overhaul in our warfighting doctrine, to what is clearly one of General McConville's top priorities, something he calls people first. You'll also hear another voice in this conversation, Major Brett Reichertz. He is an MWI non-resident fellow and one of the hosts of a brand new podcast MWI is launching called Inside the Building. You'll actually hear a version of this conversation along with some added content as one of the episodes. Other episodes will feature guests who work in the Pentagon and can help explore what's happening there, from defense policy to budgeting to training and more. It will be an incredible glimpse inside the building. You'll be able to find it wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll put the word out on social media when it's live in just a few days. One last thing before we get to the conversation, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's our conversation with General James McConville. Sir, General McConville, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the MWI podcast. Um, the first kind of big question I want to ask you, you've been in this role now for about five months since August uh, of 2019, and I think most people will have heard this. I certainly have many times. I've heard you say people first. Yeah. I wonder if you can kind of give um, a better picture, kind of a big picture of what that means to you when you say that. Yeah, let me explain what I mean by people first. First of all, when I, when I talk about people, I'm talking about soldiers. I'm talking about soldiers in the regular army. I'm talking about soldiers in the reserves. I'm talking about soldiers in the National Guard. I'm talking about our Department of the Army civilians. I'm talking about our families, and I'm talking about our soldiers for life who are retirees and veterans. And if I believe that if we get the right people in the right place at the right time and take care of them and make sure that we have cohesive teams formed where everyone treats everyone with dignity and respect, everything else will follow us. We will still be the world's greatest army, and we'll continue um, to grow the way we need to grow for the future. Sir, in your capacity as the, as the Chief of Staff of the Army, uh, a lot of people view that as manning, training, equipping the Army, thinking about what it is that the Army is going to have to do in the future. Um, but there's also the other hat that you play, and that's as a member of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. And of um, recent, it's a, it seems that the environment is strategically uncertain. Um, what is informing your view of what the Army needs to look like in 2035? What's changed? We're clearly moving away from what we've been doing. Um, so can you just give us a little bit of that? Sure. I, you know, I think what's, which is driving, um, you know, the, the, where we're going in the army is the national defense strategy and the national defense strategy talks about great power competition. And, and, and I like to add, when we talk about great power competition, they're talking about with China and Russia, but great power competition does not mean great power conflict. 
And we're also going to have some uh, regional uh, actors uh, like Iran and North Korea that we have to deal with. And we don't see the violent extremist organizations going away. So we, we have to deal with that. So we have to get ready for, for the next fight, and, and we're doing that right now. It's not about fighting the last fight better. It's about getting ready for the next fight. And the next fight is a fight that we believe will be contested in every single domain. Will be contested on the land, will be contested in the sea, will be contested uh, in the air, will be contested in cyber, and contested in space. And for many of our, our soldiers, our non-commissioned officers, and officers who've done a fabulous job over the last 18 to 19 years, uh, their perspective has been in irregular warfare counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. So we're going to have to, first of all, get them ready. We're going to have to change our doctrine. That's why we're going to multi-domain operations. Um, we're going to have to develop new equipment, which we're doing. And we're going to have to get, we're going to have to train so we're able to win on this future battlefield. Sir, I, I, I heard you speaking about, you know, most people in the Army know that we're in a, in a period of transformation. We hear this word a lot. We hear modernization. Um, it's a big thing to kind of get your head around. Uh, and I saw a slide that, that, that you had put up that sort of um, describes this, uh, and it compares the transformation that we're in now to the period in the 1970s sure. and 1980s across the dot mil PF spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if you can um, talk a little bit about uh, specifically the, um, what that means from a personnel perspective, the P in dot mil PF, and, and how uh, soldiers and officers uh, in the Army today are going to, are going to experience um, some new processes in the in the coming years. Yeah, I think w- when I talk about where we are in the army, you know, one of the, one of the things that we're trying to do is is transition from what I would call an industrial age army to an information age. And, and what I mean by that is we tend to manage uh, soldiers, non-commissioned officers, and officers basically by uh, their their rank or grade and their military occupation specialty or their branch. They're a sergeant of infantry or they're a captain of engineers. And what we want to be able to do in the future is manage them maybe by 25 variables. You know, uh, you know, what are their talents? What are their knowledge, skills, and behavior uh, that they have? And we even are considering, which some may consider as blasphemous in the Army, their preferences, where they <laughs> want to go and what they want to do. Because I believe... If we get people, the right people, in the right job at the right time, and they're doing what they want to do, and we can accommodate that, not everyone's going to be able to do that, uh, they will be passionate about what they're doing, and they will make us a much better army. It's also a, presumably a pretty powerful retention tool. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think, I think there's, you know, I've talked to a lot of um, chief executive officers uh, in the civilian sector, and we are in a war for talent. We're competing for talent. We're going to have to do it in the Army. Uh, they're doing it in industry. And, you know, the extraordinary young men and women we have today is want to be part of something bigger than themselves, which you could do in the Army. They want to belong to a team. And the Army is, you know, one of the most respected institutions in the country. And their parents want them to have an opportunity for success and you can do anything you want to in the Army. But, but having said that, with all the things we offer, we still have to compete for their talent to come in. And once they come into the Army, we've got to recognize their talents and, and compete to retain them in the future. Are there, you, you mentioned discussions you've had with CEOs, uh, the, the talent management, the marketplace that I think a lot of people have heard about and some people have now started to experience. Yeah. 
um, is is clearly borrowing some dynamics from the private sector. Are there others that people might not have heard of dynamics from in terms of compensation or things that uh, that might be introduced in the future as well? Well, I think you know a couple of things is you know some some have heard about a new battalion commander's assessment program, and some would use the analogy it, it's like a combine in professional football. Mm. And you know if you, you take a look at uh, when, when people go to the pros and, and for professional football teams, they're looking for certain talents to fill out their rosters. So they bring all the, uh, the, the young men in from various colleges. And from those colleges, you have Heisman Trophy winners who have had you know, a, a body of work that demonstrates that they may have the potential for the pros. And then other uh, young men come in that maybe didn't play for a big college, but they have certain talents. And they all compete they go they run the 40 they jump so high they lift so much they do certain type of uh skills that the the national football league has determined make a great football player and that's how you see walk-ons tending to make the pros in some ways become outstanding for the battalion commander's assessment program we're looking at the same type thing except it's not about just about physical fitness it's about your ability uh for it's a comprehensive uh, leadership assessment on your potential, how you've done in the past, uh, can you can you write, can you speak, um, and all, and, and really how, how you know some of the feedback from um, your peers and subordinates and on how you've led, and and that's how we're going to determine who the future leaders of the Army are. Sir. So clearly people first is the philosophy. Um, you have the priorities. Modernization is one of those. Um, the passion about changing exponentially the, the personnel system and the way that we're retaining and developing talent is clear. When those people come in, the tools that they have, the operations that they conduct, can you describe a little bit of the modernization priority and what's changing and um, why or how it's analogous to a post-Vietnam era? Yeah, I think what you know we saw, like when we came out of Vietnam, um, you know, we, we had a great power competition. It was with, with the Soviet Union. So what we did was we changed the doctrine. We went to Ireland battle. Uh, we built the combat training centers. Uh, we had some challenges. Um, and quite frankly, interesting enough, with Iran, uh, you know, they, they took our embassy and we did not have the special operations capability to respond to that. So we set up range battalions, the 160th. Um, we built the big five, you know, we brought on, you know, the Abrams, we brought on the Bradley, we brought on the Apache helicopter, uh, the Blackhawk and Patriot, and we established the all-volunteer force. Uh, that was about 40 years ago. In fact, it's about when I came in the Army. And so we're at a point right now, an inflection point, where we're going to change the doctrine. We're going to go to multi-domain operations. We're going to build new organizations like the multi-domain task force. We're building the security force assistance brigade so we can compete. We're standing up an information warfare command, recognizing that we're in the information age, and we're going to need to do that. Um, you know, where we built dirt combat training centers before, we're building cyber ranges now. We're using artificial intelligence to help us um, in virtual reality, in augmented reality, so we can train our soldiers differently. We have six modernization priorities, and we're, we're implementing a 21st century talent management system. Speaking of the six modernization priorities, this is where we're talking about hardware. Um, you, you've mentioned the big five. Um, you kind of alluded to them just now uh, that were introduced in that period of transformation about 40 years ago. Um, and now there are there are six. What kind of a timeline, you know, for for 
we're at West Point here. So cadets that are going to be commissioning right. this May, at what stage of their careers will they start to be seeing some of these capabilities fielded? Well, they're going to see them very shortly. Our number one priority is long-range precision fires. And so we expect in about two two years to have hypersonic missiles. Never had them before. You wow. know, they're going to start seeing that come together. We just successfully tested a precision strike missile system that's shooting 500 kilometers. That's that's coming out as we as we speak. We're flying uh, demonstration models um, for for new helicopters. We're driving uh, robotic vehicles right now. They're all in the process of being tested. Uh, we're bringing out new new. Uh, weapon systems, a, a rifle and a uh, squad automatic weapon, along with an integrated visual uh, visual augmentation system, is going to transform the way our infantry operates in the battle. So we're talking anywhere from two years to about eight years. Most of this equipment is going to be fielded. So these lieutenants are going to see me as lieutenants or captains uh, over the next eight, over the next two to eight years. Wow. Sir, I want to transition a little bit away, uh, and I want to remind ourselves that the chief of staff of the Army as an institution carries with it a lot of weight. Um, and sometimes we forget that you're an actual person, a human being that's just transitioned into a new job five months ago. Um, and we want to hit that home a little bit for the listeners and, and talk a little bit about um, transitioning from you were the G1, you are the vice chief of staff of the Army, you're clearly um, able and familiar with the Army as an organization, but a part of the job that you now serve in is a little bit different in terms of what your role is on the um, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, what does it feel like to transition into a job like that and be asked to do things that are, are have got to feel a little bit uncomfortable? What What is it like for you as an individual, not as the institution of the chief? Well, I, th I think for, for myself is, you know, I, I you know, it's, it's um been a very challenging uh, couple of months with some of the things that are going on in, on the Middle East, but what it's made me uh, appreciate is just how good our army is and how good our soldiers are. Um, you know, it's in the news, so I'll talk about it, but when the uh, embassy in Iraq was under siege, we alerted the 82nd Airborne Division. And they responded in record time and just so proud of what they're doing. We, you know, we have Patriot batteries all over the Middle East uh, providing critical uh, defensive capability uh, for, for our soldiers and our partners. And I'm just so proud of what they're doing. We're asking a lot of our soldiers. I know as the chief, I've asked an awful lot of our soldiers um, in, in that region, in uh, Asia and really throughout the world and you know as, as a chief it just makes me very very proud of these extraordinary young men and women that continue to serve. So you uh, commissioned into the army in 1981 is that right? That's correct. So you've seen the army through various you know, peacetime periods the first Gulf War now the past almost two decades of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and now this period of transformation um, I wonder if you can point to, uh, just from your personal experience, something that has really, really changed over the course of that nearly four decades of service. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, when, when I came into the Army, um, I came to, came to West Point in 1977. And, you know, for some people, they don't remember what it was like to serve uh, in the Army in the 70s. And it was, it was not the best time. Uh, you know, we had come out of Vietnam. Uh, the support for the military was not very strong. Our Vietnam veterans uh, did not get the respect or the thanks that they deserved, and they were very 
uh, valorous and courageous in what they did just like every single generation. And, you know, we had problems uh, in Iran, so our military was not very strong. And I remember um, May 27, 1981 was my graduation date. And the person that spoke at that graduation, a lot of people don't remember who their graduation speaker was or what they said. Well, I do. He was a 70-year-old man. Uh, he had just been shot two months prior, and his name was President Ronald Reagan. Mm. And I don't remember everything he said, but I do remember how he made me feel. And he made me really proud to be American. And he talked about how he was going to make you know, the, the country strong again. He talked about how he was going to bring it together. And he reminded us uh, a quote from George Washington, who said that it's, it's about peace through strength. Peace through strength. And he also reminded us, because some people used to kid him about his age, that he was not there when George Washington said that. <laughs> but I remember that because that was a fundamental change in the United States Army. It, it was a fundamental way the, you know, the American people looked at us. And we built the Army back. And you know, I talked a little bit about what we did with the Big Five and the change in doctrine. And we made the Army much, much more professional. We invested in the Army. We invested in the military. We gave people a good uh, amount of, you know, as far as we compensate them for what, you know, what they deserved. And it was a fundamental change in the Army. And quite frankly, we, we're living on that today. You know, the, the systems that we use, the training areas that we use, pretty much all came out of the late 70s and early 80s. And so what I'm trying to do as chief is recognize that. And so 40 years from now, the chief of staff of the Army and the soldiers that are serving, they don't have 80-year-old equipment. They may have 40-year-old equipment. And so we must modernize the Army. And modernizing the Army is not just about getting new equipment. It's the doctrine. It's the organizations. It's the people. And, 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 and it's the training that goes along with that. So all that is critically important. So, sir, we've talked a lot about the soldiers. We've talked a lot about updated op operating concepts and equipment. Um, how about their families? I know, as yeah. you mentioned, people first. And you don't just mean soldiers. You mean the veterans. You mean retirees. You mean yeah. families. And that support structure that surrounds them. I know there's a lot of updates. Can you give us yeah, a Yeah, I think, I think, you know, as far as priorities, uh, you know, first of all, you know, something, it, the right thing to do is to take care of families. But what's interesting enough, when, when you take a look at uh, our soldiers, so sergeant and above, uh, which is really our leadership, 88% of our soldiers that are, are sergeant above have, have a, a spouse or a family. So the right thing to do is take care of them, but we must take care of them if we want them to continue to serve in the Army. So I have five, and the Secretary and I have five uh, quality of life priorities. Uh, we want to make sure, one, that all our families have quality housing, and we've had some issues with that, and we're going to fix it. We, we want them to have quality health care. We're going through a transition right now with the Defense Health Agency, and we want to make sure that there's no um, drop in the quality of health care that uh, our soldiers are getting. Many of our soldiers have children, so we've got to have quality child care. Are there dual couples that we've got to have quality child care? And many of our spouses are, are employed, so spousal employment is extremely important. And the final thing is we've had some trouble with PCS moving just because of how much we're moving people and I'd like to see in the future we don't move people as much let them stay you know if we can do that let people stabilize longer the one of the ways of you know reducing uh, the turmoil in moves is to do less moves but we've got to fix that too and we got to look for innovative ways 
to take care of our families when they move. And if, I think if we take care of the families, the soldiers will stay. So I want to ask um, maybe kind of two questions about the reserve component. Um, I'm a reserve officer. I'm also an Army civilian, and I work primarily with active duty personnel. Um, so I have I kind of have visibility on a lot of this, but for the most part, there's a lot of there are big firewalls between between these components um, that have that are in a lot of ways administrative. Um, and I wonder if you can speak a little bit about kind of bringing those components together and what some of the mechanisms might be, and if you think that's a good idea. And then uh, second, kind of a broader question. Um, the reserve component traditionally has been a strategic reserve. It's So you've got a ready pool of manpower in case a big war erupts. Um, over the course of since about 2001, 2003, um, in many ways it's sort of just become de facto an operational reserve when you had you know reserve units deploying um, quite frequently. Now that we've drawn down considerably, at least from the peaks of our, of our troop numbers in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, it strikes me that there's kind of that we're at an inflection point where we can decide: do we want the reserve component to be a strategic reserve again, or continue to be an operational reserve that's sort of integrated with the active component more than it has been? Yeah, let me take that. I, and you really have two parts to that. First of all, um, our reserves, our National Guard, and our Army Reserve are absolutely critical to the United States Army. We cannot do what we do without them, and we're proving that over the last 18 years. And so one of the things I learned uh, as the G1 of the Army was we had three personnel systems. We had one personnel system for the regular army, one for the National Guard, and one for the reserves. And I, I would equate this to very similar during the Civil War when you had different gauge railroads. So when you went from one state to another state, you'd have to download all the equipment from one train to another train. It was very ineffective and inefficient. You'd lose things and break things. And what happens to our, our reserve soldiers, many, when they come on active duty, their pay gets messed up, their, you know, their wards, their, a lot of things, just a lot of problems with that. It's not a, 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 a seamless transition from reserve to active duty. So what we're doing right now is we're implementing the integrated personnel and pay system. So we will have all of our soldiers on one system. And then we'll be able to see all the talent we have. The second thing is, and this gets back to the whole talent management system, is there's tremendous, tremendous talent and our Army National Guard and Reserves. We just got to be able to find it. Mm. And sometimes, I, I make the argument, I talked about two variables. We mask it behind you're like a sergeant of, you know, infantry or logistics. I, I, when I, I, go, I hearken back to my time in Afghanistan where we were doing a lot of developmental activities, and I was a one-star in the 101st Airborne Division. And I asked the Reserve and National Guard soldiers to give me, you know, because we didn't, we couldn't see it in the system, to tell me on an Excel spreadsheet what they did in this civilian occupation. And I found out that a sergeant that owned an engineering design firm, and he was an engineering design designer, and that sergeant is the one that designed all the, the bases uh, during the search. Uh -huh. And we had another officer who was the head of the Texas Highway Department. So we had him doing highways, which we're trying to build. Now, I like to joke, uh, I'm from Boston, and at least where I was from, we don't do a whole lot of farming where I was from. There's <laughs> pictures of farms, but we don't do a whole lot of farming. But we had reservists who were professional farmers. So why not have them, you know, when we're trying to help the, the Afghans with agriculture do those type jobs? But whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's marketing, we have tremendous talent 
in our reserves, and we need to be able to tap into it. That's what the integrated personnel and pay system is going to do. The second part of your question is, is it a strategic reserve or an operation reserve? I, I would argue it's both. It depends. And what do I mean by that? Some units are going to be, and, and we need to tell them. You get into talent management, part of this preference. Okay, this unit is strictly a strategic reserve type unit, so you can expect that this is the amount of time that you're going to deploy. We have other soldiers in the reserve. They want to deploy all the time. They just like the idea of being stabilized in a community. And so those units will maybe deploy much, much more. They may be at a higher level of readiness. And so what I'm about is, 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 is finding the sweet spot, optimizing units, not treating everyone like the industrial age where everyone is interchangeable parts. Some may be more, some may be less. And we can manage that at our level once we have everyone on a, a personnel system. Well, sir, I think we're going to um, wrap up uh, here, but I do want to ask one final question. Uh, I heard you mention that you will at some point uh, come out with your chief of staff of the Army's reading list, which I think is a, a fantastic tradition in the Army and a signal that the Army takes itself seriously as a learning organization. Um, I wonder if you can give us a little bit of a sneak peek and just mention a book that you've read maybe recently yeah. that sort of impacts the way that you're looking at your job right now. Well, you know, you know the, the reading lists, and I've, I've read a lot of reading lists, and there's there's certain, and I'm going to come out with you know probably a top twelve books that people need to read, and, and I've I've read a whole bunch of books, and I'm going to get that to it. But I'd, I'd say two books that have impacted me lately, and I'm reading, and it, I have just completed reading. One is called Range um, by David Epstein, and I like this book because. Uh, first of all, uh, one of my former bosses, uh, General Schoomaker, sent me, sent me this book, and he's a very innovative, thoughtful leader, and he just suggested that I read it. But what it talks about is the idea that sometimes specialists cannot come up with new ideas that transform the system because they're so tied to the system. So if we want to transform the personnel system, you may not want a personnelist to transform the system. You may want someone that's been st doing something else that has a different perspective, that can bring that perspective and come up with a new way of doing things. Because what tends to happen with change is people in the system that know the system incrementally improve it. You know, I like to use the example of the phone. You know, the phone started as a, um, a dial phone on the wall. And then people wanted to have it a little more mobile, so they got a longer cord, so you could walk the, you know, the phone around the house. And then you started knocking lamps down and things like that, so you said, well, we got to make it cordless. And then you came out with a cordless phone. And then people said, well, I want to go outside. I want to be able to talk you know, around the thing, so we got a cell phone. But somewhere in there, someone that thought differently came with the idea and go, you know, we're going to be taking pictures with our phone. Who would have thought we'd be taking <laughs> pictures with our phone? You know? And then someone said, you know what? Um, we used to have these paper things called maps. We're going to actually navigate with our phones. You know, who would have thought that? We're going to watch TV on our phones. We're going to get rides on our phones. We're going to do banking on our phones. And, you know, if you didn't have people that thought differently, that had a broad spectrum of thinking, you never would have got those, those thoughts in place. And the, the other one um, is The Infinite Game by uh, Simon Sinek. And, you know, he came and spoke to us. And I think, you know, I talk about winning matters. And it does. We send the United States Army somewhere. We're not going to participate. We're not going to try hard. We're going to win because there's no second place. or um, and, and there's no second place when it comes to combat. Well, some of these situations are not going to end in a peace treaty on a battleship. You know, they're, they're going to take a long time, and it's going to be a battle of wills. 
and we have to look at it way. We still want our soldiers to win, but winning may not be what we, it looks like. It may be continuing, you know, getting to a certain place during a certain period of time that supports our strategy. That's what winning looks like for that organization involved. So those are two of the books that, at least that I've been thinking about right now. And again, I'm, I'm very shortly going to get out a, a reading list uh, as soon as we got a few minutes here to think about it. Well, great, sir. Um, I have heard rumors that you have a fairly busy schedule, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. We're, we're thankful that you took some time to sit down and talk to us. Well, thank you. It's great talking to you and really appreciate uh, spending some time with you. Thanks, sir. Thanks, sir. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're releasing every day. All right, thanks again. Thanks again.